Lord Jesus, it's easy to sing to you. You've captured us. And it's easy to sing with our tongues, Lord, truth that we have rehearsed over and over, but they do not get old. And so what a joy to sing praises and remind ourselves of our great God who goes before us, who is our strength. And when we are weak, we can always lean upon Him. And so, Lord, now as we look into Your perfect Word of God, as we do our best to exegete it and explain it, we pray that You would teach us to trust You more. We thank you for the examples, both poor examples and good examples we see within the scriptures. All of them are meant to teach us to trust you. And so, Lord, as we rehearse these things and maybe read stories we've read before, would you continue to expose truth to us? Capture our hearts once again in Jesus' name. Amen. Entitled the sermon, Jacob's Wrestling His Way Home. Jacob's wrestling his way home. Um, He is indeed going to wrestle physically, but he is in a wrestling. He is learning to trust the Lord. (laughs) You think about what we've seen already uh, in the series just recently. We saw that Jacob had been through a difficult crisis with Laban, right? He took off with with the daughters and, and the kids and the maids and all the stuff that he had. And Laban tracked him down, and that was an intense situation, was it? You could feel the tension in the room, or outside in their case, when those two met. And yet, yet there's one more major issue blocking his return to Canaan. And his name is Esau. (laughs) And I'm sure Jacob can probably still hear the death threats, even though it's been 20 years. Death threats from his brother. But both Jacob and Esau now are what we would say in their middle ages. They're probably late 80s, early 90s. The biblical right now, because they die, he, Jacob dies at 180. So he's middle-aged, has a young families with him. And they've grown, both of them. One groaning to trust the Lord. Another one somehow worldly letting go of things. But Jacob knows, and what's important about this is Jacob knows that God has selected him. He understands that God has selected him to build a nation through him. And he knows those promises, but we all know promises, and it's hard to walk at times, isn't it? It's hard to trust the Lord even when we know those promises, and we're going to see Jacob go through those. Esau, on the other hand, has been rejected by God. God has rejected Esau. And Esau continues to marry outside the nation, continues to be just a difficult person to his own parents, and yet he too is building a nation. And this nation will oppose the nation of Israel for many years. The Bible says he was living in the land of Seir, S-E-I-R there. We don't know where that is, actually. Uh, It's very difficult to pin down exactly where it is. But we know it was somewhere south of the Red Sea and east over in the Sinar Plain a little bit. Um, And we know this because later that's where the nation of Edom comes out of that area. And that nation opposes Israel for centuries. But God's called Jacob home. We learned that last week. Time to go home, Jacob. 20 years. Seven for 
for Leah, <laughs> thought it was Rachel, another seven for Rachel, and then, of course, another six for his flocks and herds. But God has called him home, and what's going home with him, and I want you to think about this, and we'll close with the same thought. What's going home with Jacob is the seed of Christ in Judah. Judah's born, and he's a little boy. In the, in th- I want you to think about this. In this text, the seed of Christ is entering the promised land for the very first time. And that seed will walk down through incredible lineage. Prostitutes, <laughs> warriors, all kinds of people. And that seed will be born in that promised land. And we know that seed will die in that promised land for you and I. But in this in this series, and here in 32 and 33, we see him return back home. But on the way home, he gets into a wrestling match in more than one way. So let's look at a couple of thoughts today. Number one, confronting the past with the promises of God. I want you to think about that thought. I use uh, more spiritual thinking in my main points as we develop the text and go through it. But it's an overall spiritual thought, Confront, confronting the past with the promises of God. I want you to think through that. We all have a past. Often Satan likes to beat us up with it. We confront the past with promises. And that's what Jacob's going to do. He's going to rely on promises God gave him at Bethel as he wrestled with God there, wrestled with the angel of the Lord there. He is going to rely on that to get him through some of the most difficult circumstances. So, doubtlessly, Jacob's a little bit nervous as he is getting ready to see Esau, he knows that's an inevitable uh, confrontation that has to happen. But God has got him through one intense situation, and the Laban situation was very intense. And it seems Jacob's learning to trust the Lord to go through the next. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 32 with me. Genesis 32, 1 and 2. Now Jacob went on his way, and then this little phrase here, the angels of God met him. And Jacob said when he saw them, this is a camp of God. So he named the place Mahalim, which means two camps. And so here in this first section, as we begin to see what's going on now, he's departed from Laban, he's been traveling quite a distance now. By the grace of God, as he comes into this valley, this river valley, and I'll show you or give you some ideas where that is in a minute. He, he first comes and he has a meeting with angels from God. Now, the text doesn't tell us much about it, but what it does tell us is the name of the place, which means double camp, and it seems that the meeting with these angels of God is where Jacob comes up with the idea to split his camp. Remember what he's going to do? He's going to split his wives up and children, and he's going to put them in two different camps. So whatever happens here, and the Bible just is silent. It just says he met up with some angels of God. Okay? What'd that happen? Whatever happens, he names the place two camps. So somewhere along the line, through these angels, God's directing Jacob through a very difficult, intense situation of how to handle it. Look at verses 3 through 5. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus you, should, you say, Your servant Jacob... I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkey and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Now, here 
Jacob sends these servants out ahead of him. He's, he's smart. He has wisdom. He's met with these angels. He has a plan. He believes God is, is going to take him through this. But here's the goal. He sends these servants out to find Esau. And he wants to tell, uh, Jacob wants to tell Esau this. I'm okay. I don't need your stuff. I think that's what he's doing here. Tell him I got camels and donkeys and I got servants. I'm not after the birthright, the blessing. He's, he's backing away from that because he knows Esau loves that stuff. He's pulling away from, tell him I'm okay. I have what I need. Now notice also, it seems Jacob instructs his men to take a very subservient position before Esau. Esau is to be called Lord. Notice that in the text, small l. And then he says, refer to me as your servant. So he takes this subservient role as he comes into this very, very tense situation. The last words out of Esau's mouth is, I'm going to kill you when dad dies. That's running through his mind. So now he has, well, he has wisdom. He has been starting to trust God and he's starting to obey him. So Jacob does not attempt to retrieve his birthright or blessing here. He's just saying, Esau, I, I don't need anything. I'm okay. Keep your stuff. You can be the man, right? Look at verse 6 through 8. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, then the company with his, which is left will escape. So the servants go out. They soon come back with news. And they said, look, uh, Jacob, Esau's out there all right. <laughs> He's there. And he knows you're coming. And he has 400 men. I mean, what would you think? What would go through your mind? <laughs> the last thing you told me 20 years ago is you're going to kill me. Now you've heard through the grapevine, right? I mean, word, they didn't have texts, you know, and email and all that, but word travels. And before Esau was told that he was coming, he was on the way to meet him. And so Jacob doubtlessly is nervous here. It's a disturbing news. And notice it causes Jacob to enact his two-company plan, right? That maybe he got from these angels in this this meeting. He enacts this plan so that if Esau attacks one, the other may survive. It's a good plan. Notice verse 9 through 12. Jacob says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the seas, which are too great to be numbered. Well, I love this little section here in 9 through 12. The most important thing that Jacob does when he hears the news of Esau coming with these 400 men is he goes to prayer. He goes to prayer. Now, we have not seen this out of Jacob up to this point. This is not how he has responded to difficulties. 
He's often ran from things and uh, uh, chose to do things a little underhanded at times. But here he goes to prayer. Notice in verse 9, he's repeating the promises of God. He's nervous. He's got a difficult situation that he is about ready to step in. And so what does he do first in the prayer? He repeats promises of God. What a lesson. What a good lesson for us. Uh, We have promises. We know promises that God loves us. He'll neither leave us nor forsake us. We know that he promised to take all our sins away. He promises a place in eternity with him. It's so good when you come against difficult situations to remind yourselves of the promises of God. And notice how he reminds himself of these promises. Verse 10, there is this humbleness about him. Again, we have not seen this type of humble attitude out of Jacob before. Notice his choice of words. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness. Notice the alls in this text. I love alls. I circle most of them in my Bible because they're so interesting to think about. All the loving kindness. He's starting to count the ways God has blessed him. And then he goes on to say, all the faithfulness. He's thought back now, you delivered me from this, you delivered me from this, you blessed me with this. And he's thinking of these promises, he's thinking of these blessings. And then he uses another word, for you have shown to your servant. Look at this, that's humble. You've shown to your servant. For with my staff only I cross this Jordan. He's standing probably close. We'll see where he ends up, it's in a kind of a little wedge where two rivers come together. He's there and he sees this. I came across this with a staff. Remember I told you as we looked at the text and it's a little fuzzy when he leaves, but we we realized he didn't have anything. He grabbed a staff. Mom said, go. Brother's gonna kill you. And he says, I crossed this Jordan, Lord, and I didn't have anything. And now you've made me two companies. Then he says, verse 11, and I, I love this phrase, I love the Hebrew word here. literally says, save me. Save me. I'm going to (laughs) die. Save me. Deliver me. It's a word of of deliverance. Save me from this moment. I pray. You can see he's writing this beautiful prayer with the Lord. And he tells what the problem is. It's the hand of my brother. It's the hand of Esau. For I fear him. I'm afraid what he may do. And so this prayer just comes out of it. Then verse 12, he closes his prayer with with another reminder of God's promises. In fact, there's more detail in this than we saw in the the Bethel promise. The Bethel promise that he would make him a great nation, but these are other things that must have been said. Your descendants will be as sand of the sea, which are too great to number. He's quoting God. God, you said, quote, See, it's a good reason to memorize Scripture. When you memorize Scripture, your prayer life gets better. Because you pray. You pray the words of Scriptures and to find comfort in that. And so, this first section, we start to see that Jacob is in a deep confrontation that's coming. It's something from the past, but he's going to strengthen himself through the promises of God. What do you have in your life? What's coming up? What's... A little overwhelming when you think of your past starts creeping back sometimes. Satan loves to use that, by the way. What can you run to the Lord with? Second thought. Prayer that trust in God, excuse me, prayer that trust in God's promises often results in wisdom. 
Prayer that trusts in God's promises often results in wisdom. Look at 13 through 23. Let me just read this section. So he spent the night there. And then he selected from what he had, uh, what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and, and 20 rams. 30 milking camels and their colts. 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys, and he delivered them in the hands of his servant. Every drove by itself, and that's a funny wording, it means they took a servant, they put all the flock out in front, in front of him, he drove them by himself. So there's a band of these animals, one servant behind them, and then a wave of them. Notice how it goes here. And said to his servants, pass on by me and put a space between the droves. And he commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and to whom do these animals in front of you belong, then you shall say, These belong to, here we go again, your servant Jacob. It is a present sent, from, sent to my Lord Esau. He's quoting Jacob again. And behold, he also is behind us. And then he commanded the second and the third and all those who followed the droves, so there's quite a few droves of these animals, saying, after this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterwards I will see his face and perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him and while he himself spent the night in the camp, now he rose that same night and took his two wives and his maid, two maids and his eleven children and crossed the brook at Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream. And he sent, and he sent across whatever he had. Now it's been 20 years now, think about this, 20 years since the death threat. Jacob's learning to trust the Lord through trials. And after his prayer that he just prayed, it led him to a wise decision. Between meeting with the angels, praying with the Lord, humbling himself, he comes up with a plan. And through God's direction, he assembles this great gift to his brother Esau. And, and here's, here's what Jacob did. I just So you don't have to do the numbers, let me do them for you. He has his servants drive, and I counted these, 580 animals <laughs> in, in a bunch of waves. Because it it's a continual, he says, the two, second and third and as many as there are. So it's just wave after wave of a servant pushing livestock ahead of him right into the path of Esau. He also continues the instruction that he gave to the servants earlier. Humble yourself in front of Esau. Call him Lord. Refer to me as your servant. And then what he does is he splits up all that he has into two companies. He sends his families and belongings ahead of him. And now you find Jacob alone with God. And the question is, is what is he going to do this time? He's got a good plan. He's trying to appease Esau, but he's scared. He's trying to trust God's promises. And man, do I know this. Lord, this is a step of faith. This is like, step out. Let me show you a couple passages. Keep your finger there, but go to Proverbs chapter 16 with me. There's several passages in the Old Testament I'll find myself in as I'm trying to ask God to give me faith to trust him in something. These are passages that 
were on our heart a lot as we came trying to figure out if this was God's will for us to come here, as we've gone through different things in our life. These are some passages, both in Proverbs and in Psalm, I want to take you to. And just maybe this will be something that will encourage you. Look at Proverbs chapter 16, starting in verse 1. We'll read down just a little ways here. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Isn't that a great proverb? It, it, it's, it's amazing that God can so stir our hearts during something, and we may say, I think I'm going to do this, but can, what can come out of us when we submit ourselves to God is the words of God, in a sense. The tongue belongs to Him. Verse 2, all the, ways, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. And in this passage, he's weighing Jacob's motive. Is is his motive to trust me? Is he more afraid of Esau than he is in trusting me? And then he gives some some ways to to learn to to trust him, right? Three, commit your works to the Lord. And your plans will be established. I think that's what's going to happen this night as Jacob spends this night and then wrestles with the Lord and, and so forth. He is striving to commit these plans to the Lord. He wants the Lord to establish this. Verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. I mean, this text just fits this one in Genesis as well. Lord, my brother hates me. You have your hand in this? (laughs) Because I'm not so sure. Have you ever asked the Lord? Sometimes we have difficult issues that hit us. You go, Lord, you say you have your hand in all of these things, but even the wicked? But here Solomon says the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Well, that would probably be Esau, what we've learned about him. Surely he will not be unpunished. But loving kindness and truth and iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Oh, man, that's a great phrase. How do you keep away from sin? Fear the Lord. <laughs> Hide the word of God in your heart so you don't sin against him. This is another verse that comes along with that same thought. Fear God and run from sin. When we, when we engage in sinful things, it's because we didn't fear God. Look at verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. What a great verse. Chase of the almighty dollar is life-encompassing sometimes. Bills and medical expenses and all those things. But yeah, God says better is little with righteousness. Doing right according to God's standards. Verse 9 The mind of the man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. (laughs) Here's Jacob planning his ways, but he is clearly going to God. Help me, God. Look at one other passage. Go to Psalms 37. Maybe one that's a little more familiar to you. As we rehearse promises to trust the Lord and humble, humble, humble ourselves. So many great commands within this passage. Number one, verse number one, do not fret because of evildoers. I mean, what I love about the Bible is its timeless truths don't change. 
That verse can be written to Jacob as he's down in the Jabok River Valley. You know, 4,000 years ago or more. And it can be written to you and I today when there's people who are after us. Who don't like us. Do not fret because of evildoers. What, what, what book can do that? What else than God's word can span time and, and, and be perfectly present tense for us and present tense for Jacob? Be not envious towards wrongdoers. Sometimes it's easy to say, wow, why do they get away with it? Verse 2, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. That's what happens when judgment comes. Grass doesn't last very long. And then he gives these great commands. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light in your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing, for evildoers will be cut off. But those, those who wait on the Lord, they'll inherit the land. It's like that was written to Jacob. <laughs> A thousand years David, later, David's writing this. A timeless truth, timeless promises that you and I hold to, whether you are a mom or a, or a retired person or whatever it may be, these promises hold true. Turn back to our text with me. And let's think about a third thought. Prayer and humility, and yet we still wrestle with God. We have prayer and humility. God helps us get there by his grace, right? But yet, at times, we still wrestle with God. This is a physical wrestling, although very spiritual in a way. Look at verse 24 through 32 with me. Let me just read the text. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his hip, so the socket of Jacob's Thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he, but, but he said, I will not let you go until or unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Penel, for he said, I have seen God's face to face. <laughs> I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun arose upon him just as it crossed over Penel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip which is on the socket of the thigh because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of his hip. Now think about the situation here. Here in the pitch black of this river valley where these rivers come together, in verse 24, the Bible says a man wrestled with Jacob until daybreak. The details of the struggle are not provided. The text doesn't say how that all started, like 
you know, tag, you're it, or whatever. But it is clear that this was a physical battle, right? This was a, this was a real wrestling match. You read some of these crazy liberals and different people that write on this stuff. It's almost comical. I read them just to laugh sometimes. This was a, this was a spiritual wrestling in the mind of God. Well, why is he limping? <laughs> so, so now clearly it's real physical. It's going on. Although it has spiritual tones to it, doesn't it? He's got to learn to trust the Lord. And then the word of, the, word of the man is, is for, for man here, is very common. It speaks of a human being, a male human being. Yet in verse 30, Jacob says, he declares this, that I've, I've wrestled with God, I've seen God face to face, and I'm alive. So clearly that man isn't just some man. <laughs> some drifter coming through. Well, most likely it's, probably the Son of God in human form. And mark this, in human strength. That's what's interesting about this passage. And you go, well, don't you think the Lord could take him? Why, why does he lose? Because it's kind of like he loses, isn't it? It's kind of like he, he doesn't win. The Lord has to pull out the old special and thumb in the hip trick. Well, I think it's a precursor. I think it's the Lord Jesus Christ taking on a pre-pre-incarnate theophany before the Lord, before God. And, and it seems that it's a precursor to what his incarnation will be like. In his incarnation, he suffered hunger, he suffered tiredness, he suffered stress at times, and he even lacked strength. And that's one of the things fascinating about this text it's a precursor to him to come. And we see him here take on human form and wrestle with Jacob. And in the end, this divine touch to Jacob's hip stops the wrestling match in a sense. And later the Jews say, well, okay, we're not going to eat that part. It's not in the law. They made that one up. Make sure you know that. Um, so you can eat whatever that meat is around the hip. Don't worry about that. And so here he is wrestling with it. In verses 26 to 29, there's this conversation that's recorded between Jacob and the man that's a little hard to follow in the English. So I translated it out of the Hebrew here, and, and let me see if it reads a little smoother this way. The Lord says, let me go for the day breaks. Jacob says, there's a lot of pronouns in there that you get lost in, right? He said, well, who's he? And you're trying to figure all that out, right? Jacob, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob knows that blessing. <laughs> he was told it at Bethel. He received it from Isaac. And he's still trying to figure it out. What is that blessing? Am I going to get this? So far, it's not been very easy. I had to run from my house. I had to work 14 years for two wives, one of which I didn't want. I now have 11 children, servants, and all this stuff. But I worked for all of that. What's the blessing? And then the Lord says, what is your name? Now, this is very interesting. He's, Jacob says, Jacob. And the Lord says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. This is the promise. This is the blessing. Your name is not Jacob anymore because you will always be referred to as the father of the nation of Israel. 
That is the blessing. I'm going to make this great nation, stars, number of stars, like the stars that can't be counted, like the sands of the sea, that so forth, that promise. And that was the blessing. And it seems Jacob receives that, but still wants his name. Jacob says, tell me your name, I pray. And here's, here's what's a little better in the Hebrew than our, some of our English translations. The Lord says, why is it that you, now, now here's a little bit of probably, I think this is a way we'd want to translate it. Why is it that you ask about my name? Because Jacob knows who he is. So it says, why, I think our English says, I think it says, why do you ask my name? I would add, why do you ask about my name? Jacob knows exactly who he is. He knows he he is in control of the blessing. He knows who he's wrestling with. And it's interesting. The Lord says in the end of verse 29, I'll bless you. I've given you the name. I will not revoke that. You will have children upon children upon children, and from you will come Christ, who will deliver all those who put their faith in him. And so Jacob named the place Penel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. I thought just a little bit about why doesn't he give him a name? Well, there's several places that we don't see God given a name. Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, says, Hallowed be thy name. Right? It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, but there's never given a name. Um, Revelation chapter 19, verse 12, speaks of the Lord's return, and he has written, he has his name written that no one knows except him. It's interesting, he doesn't give that. He's Father, he's the Son of God, he's. Yeah, we certainly have all the Hebrew names, the Elohims, and, and so forth. But here, he doesn't give the name. And I think it just secret things belong to the Lord. And things revealed belong to us. But the point is here, there are times that we pray well and we rehearse well the promises of God, and yet life is still a struggle, isn't it? I talk to you every day, Lord. I believe who you are. I recite verses to you. And yet, I'm in this battle. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's trying to discover the will of God, what he has exactly for you to be doing. Whatever that may be, you're in this battle and you're wrestling at times with God. And we feel that. God doesn't often give us all of the information that we want. We were asking him to put a yellow brick road in front of us to come to where he wanted. It took a while to figure out what God had. He laid, there were some things in front of us that said, wow, that looks really good. And in the end, it wasn't his will. And holding on, what does God have for us? And I think it comes down is, can you be satisfied that when you've rehearsed the truths of God, you've talked with him, you've spent time in his presence, and he doesn't quite give you the answer that you can accept that? And a little furthermore, and I think Jacob is understanding this here, is that you understand that you've come into the presence of God and he accepts you. Nobody just walks into the presence of God. You know that. Nobody goes into the holy of holies who's not a priest, who's not been cleansed, who's not been free of their sins, completely forgiven and washed away. You cannot get into his throne room. Unless you're his priest. This is the priesthood of the believers. We walk into the throne room all the time, don't we? 
How many of you prayed today? Maybe over meals, maybe just for help in a certain situation. You walked in the presence of God because you are accepted. I remember preaching in our first church something around this subject, and an old cowboy came up to me and he goes, I'm just glad he lets me in the back door. I'm all good with that. I don't deserve any more than that. I just want to be in the back door. Some of you have said that to me. That's not good. You know why? Because that's not the gospel. The gospel doesn't just let you in. You just get a foot in. Hey, I'm good. I'll just sit in the back. You guys can do whatever you want up there. That's not the gospel. Full sonship. Full forgiveness. Full place setting at the table of God. Period. Join heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Get your mind around that for a little bit. He's our elder brother. God looks at him and sees us. It isn't just sit in the back door of the church or heaven or whatever you want to think. It's so much more. But still, we wait for answers from God, don't we? What do you want us to do? How do we go about this, Lord? Will you show us? And I think I see that in Jacob finally. And yeah, he's going to have some struggles in the future. Again, I've said this so many times going through this series. I love this series because you go, that's real life. These aren't patriarchs and matriarchs that are just flowing through life as just this perfect religious person. They got doubt. I mean, don't even look at 34 yet. (laughs) Dinah and all that. It's going to be a mess. And guess who it's with? Judah. There's all kinds of failures within. There's tons of sin within the Old Testament showing the greatness of a Savior who can rescue wicked people like you and I. And so we find great comfort in that. Point number four will take us through chapter 33. God's continual protection over the seed of Christ. We never want to lose view of Christ when we study this, do we? Because if you're studying the Old Testament without a view of Christ, you're studying moral stories. (laughs) Lots of churches do that. We want to see Christ. So think about this point, God's continual protection over the seed of Christ. Look at chapter 33, first four verses with me. Then Jacob lifted up his eyes and behold, and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. And he put the maids and the children in the front and Leah and her children next. And then Rachel and Joseph last. He had some favors already, didn't he? Favorites. But he, but he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to kill him. No, no. Ran to meet him and to embrace him. And fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. What a beautiful, beautiful scene, isn't it? Jacob's still reeling from this wrestling match, probably limping. He quickly divides up the families. He sees Esau coming. He doesn't know what to think. He, he knows he has 400 men. He knows what kind of man Esau is. And now he comes in his presence. It says he bows seven times. You know what that scene, what he's doing there? It's not just bowing seven times in one position. He's bowing, moving a little further, bowing, moving a little further, bowing, moving a little further, and so forth as he creeps in closer to his brother Esau. It's very subservient. And Esau is looking at him. And Jacob's remaining 
humble. He's trusting God and God's protecting him. And the anger between the two seems to be gone here all of a sudden. Isn't it amazing? 20 years apart and now it's, it's, it went from anger and death threats to kisses and hugs and weeping. God has again protected Jacob. Another very intense situation, brothers and sisters. You could probably cut the tension with a knife as he sees Esau coming at him. He sticks to the plan. He sticks to what he prayed about. He sticks to what he talked to those angels apparently about. He does what what God wanted him to do. He humbled himself and he moved his way towards Esau. And God protected him. Thus, think about this, protecting the seed of Christ. Little Judah would have had no hope against those warriors. They would have slaughtered him. And so here's God taking care of this. I think one of the things that comes out of this as I thought through this is the sin of worry. Worry robs us of joy, and I I think it does more than that. I think it robs us of discernment. Could that be true? I think worry takes you from joy. I think that's obvious, right? Worry, people who are uh, full of anxiety and worry, um, they lose their joy. I know I lose mine when I worry a lot. But I, but I think what happens, and I think we see it in this case, is we lose discernment. Because our worry now becomes greater than figuring out what God has for us. And so we start thinking like men instead of going to the word. Or thinking like a woman or thinking like a young person instead of going to the word. We don't have time to go there, but let me just share some verses with you. Philippians chapter 1, Paul says this. I want you to think through this. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake or for Christ's glory, not only to believe in him, but also to what? Anybody know this verse? Suffer for him. I heard it over here. You go, wait a minute. I like I love the first part. I've been granted by Christ, for, for Christ's glory to believe in him. But then it says to suffer for him. Ooh, I don't like that part. I like all the rosy, everything's great, you know, we're going to you know, just have a good time here. And then he adds this verse beyond that. This is Philippians 1, 29 and verse 30 now. Experiencing the same, con- con- excuse me, experience the same conflicts which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And in fact, there's another verse, I think Peter says, that our brethren suffer the same things we suffer. So what's that tell you? Mankind, because of the fall, suffers certain things, even as Christians, that that were not only for us, others suffer through it. So the word of God applies to all of us when it comes to this. And then you go to the back of the book, as he's wrapping things up, Philippians chapter 4, which I think really connects well to this, verse 6, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I think that's what Jacob did. Deliver me, save me, God. And the peace of God, oh, there's the opposite of anxiety, is peace. Then the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Wow, isn't that beautiful? Find peace in God, guards my heart. Get my joy back, get my discernment back. And I think that's what Jacob did. I, I'm more impressed with Jacob at this point in his life than I have been all along. He seems to now believe and trust in the Lord, and he's, and he's putting his hope in him. And he, I mean, can you imagine bowing seven times? You're already in, in the kneel position. Good, good place to get your head lopped off. 
and he's working his way to his brother. Man, you better have a trust in God because you're in a bad position right now, humanly. And what would the world say? Well, what are you doing that for? You already have the birthright. You have the blessing. And that's how God works. It doesn't work that way. Go back to our text. Verse 6, 11. We've got to hurry up here. Then the maids came near with their children. They bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children. They bowed down. And afterward, Joseph uh, came near with Rachel. And they bowed down. And he said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, that's Esau, now Jacob. He said, to find favor in your sight, my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God. And you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have plenty. Thus, he urged him, and he took it. And this is an interesting little transition, a transaction that goes place, goes back and forth here. Jacob's wives and children, they come. Clearly, they're taught how to come to Esau. They're showing this subservient position. They're bowing to Esau. They're honoring him. Maybe some fear, but they're honoring Esau here. Verse 10, Jacob says something about the face of God. Notice this. For I've seen your face as one sees the face of God. Well, what does that mean? There's pro- Esau's probably the last person you would say you see the face of God in. So what's he doing with that? It's a very interesting little thought here. A lot of people write on it. Here's what I think is happening. I think there's such a difference between the Esau face that he saw 20 years ago and the Esau face that he sees now. What he, see, what he saw 20 years ago was a man very red-faced, very mad, and I'm going to kill you. What he sees now is a man full of joys, tear coming down in face, and embracing his brothers. To him, it's like the difference between the devil and God. I think that's, that's, that's my thought. I don't know what would you guys think, but I think that's what that means. Because he certainly, <laughs> Jacob goes, I mean, Esau goes on to be this not a very good guy. And so I think it's quite a statement. Verse 11 is a little, transi- little transaction that kind of goes back and forth. Um, Jacob says, look, I have plenty. Verse 9, excuse me, Esau says, I have plenty, my brother. Keep this yourself. Verse 11, Jacob says the same English word we have here, I have plenty. But what's interesting, the Hebrew words are different. Esau says, this is what Esau says, I have much. The word for, that's chosen in the Hebrew word here, when, when, es, when Jacob says it, says, I have everything I need. That's pretty different, isn't it? Jake, Esau goes, look, I got a lot. I got much. It's almost a proud kind of boasting. Jacob is content. Well, he just gave away about five ranches worth of stuff. You know what 580 livestock in this day and age, this would be? Today, today to have, um, if you're ranching today, you, if you had 500 mama cows, you could take care of the main mom and dad in that family, and possibly, if you managed it right, depending on how much land you owned personally, you could take on one more child who would, and his wife and that family. You need about 500 mama cows, 
in a certain amount of land that you own that you don't have to lease to be able to live on that. That's today. Here you're talking about they could plow and farm no more than 40 acres a year. That's about that's all they could do. No tractors, everything is, of course, hand done and so forth. This is a massive amount that he gives away. It's, it's, it's probably 40 families worth of life, normal, just poor, get-it-along, peasant-type people, that type of livelihood. And Jacob says, look, I have everything I need. I have everything I need. I think that's quite a statement. Look at verses 12 through 15. Then Esau said, let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he, Jacob, said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and the flocks and herds are, nur- are nursing um, are, are care to me. Mm, good wording there. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will dr- die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. And Esau said, Please let me leave you with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, But Jacob said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob sojourned to Succoth. And built for himself a house and made booze for his livestock. Therefore, the place is called Succoth. Now, after the meeting and the dialogue back and forth between Jacob and uh, Esau about the gift, Esau urged Jacob um, to let me help you. And, and I think the wording here in verse 12 um, is, is probably, and, I, and I, we're running out of time here, but I think what Esau is doing is let me be the big brother again. <laughs> Let me be the big guy. I'll take you through. I can protect you. You know what's out there? There's bad people. I got my 400 warriors. And, and I think what Jacob's doing, two things, is, uh, yeah, we've already done this before, where you're the big tough guy and I'm not. Uh, we're not going to go down that road. <laughs> so he's very graciously backing out of that. And then secondly, I think Jacob is just relieved. You know, just go, I mean, man, this has been so good, let's not ruin it. <laughs> So I think that's almost a relief. And he encourages Esau to go on ahead. But there are some precious things real quick in here. You see the tenderness of Jacob. Um, uh, I think possibly uh, he probably learned this from hanging around his mom a little more. Esau probably hung around Isaac a little more. Rebecca had an influence on him. He seems still to be a little tender. Um, I think it's a very cool passage when he talks about the animals. Hey, you push animals too hard, they lay down and die. I've had it happen. You're like, Ugh. You know, you just run them too hard. There's a pace. And remember, remember our last text? He fleed for, he had a seven-day jump on him, right? We talked about all the days. He was pushing those herds and those people and those kids as hard as he could push them to get away from Laban. They're already tired. So you push something too hard, they get sick, they lay down, you you know, now you got animals going down, what are you going to do? So he's, he's tender and he thinks about his livestock and then he thinks about his children. And there's a tenderness about that. Um, though I think he's trying to get out of this uh, going on with Esau because things have went so well, let's just let them go. And I want you to remember that though Esau seems to be pretty, pretty nice right here, he has a power, hunger, desire. The Bible told us that he would want that. 
and he lived by the sword. He is not in, he's not a good guy. And, and when you study the text, there's never a place where the text speaks of Esau in a positive way. In fact, every New Te- Old Testament, New Testament text from here on out speaks of Esau poorly outside of the death of his father. First from the Edomites that come from him who are a thorn in the flesh of, of Israel forever. And then when you get to the New Testament, stuff like this written of him, Hebrews 12, 16. There, let there not be any moral or godless person like Esau among you. So he carries the title of godlessness and, and immor, uh, immoral person down through the ages. And so I know it looks like he's kind of being a nice guy, but he's probably after that power. Let's just finish up here real quick, verse 16 and 17. You can see that he makes his way to what's Sukkoth. And it's an interesting word. It comes from the word from uh, something that nurses. And so he, he got his animals there. He built a house. He kind of put a little ranch together. These booths are stalls and corrals, and he's got all these livestock. And so he stays there for some time. The text does not tell us how long he was there. It's undetermined, but he, but he hangs out there. And where he's at, he doesn't go far from where, Jake, where Esau met him. The Jabbok River um, and the Jordan come, and they connect. And he's, he's a day's walk between both of them, and that's where he puts that ranch which is really interesting because he has good water rights from both of them, probably very good irrigated ground. He's in good soil, and he actually stays there for quite some time. And then verse 18 through 20, now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. This is now sometime later, which is in the land of Canaan. So now he's finally back home when he, came, when he, where, when he had come from Padamaram and camped before the city. So that's referring back to Bethel where he first received the promise. So he came from there. He went down to Padam around, came back, and now he bought a piece of land. Verse nineteen. He pitched his tent from uh, pitched his tent there uh, from the hands of the sons of Hamar. These are Hamarites, um, Shechem's father. And he pitched it for one hundred one hundred pieces of money, and there he erected there an altar that he called Elo, uh, uh, El El Elohi Ezrael. Um, uh, so here, this means, and this is a great great moment, I think, in Jacob's life, he says to God, listen to this, the almighty God of Israel. It's the first time we see that term used, and it's directly after God said, now your name shall be Israel. So he has indeed now accepted that term. He believes God is going to make this nation out of him. There's a lot of rough seas still to, to go over as we looked at the rest of his life, but um, he now believes it. And, and it's a closing thought. Think about this now. And we start it with this thought. The seed of Christ, who will die for you and me, is now in Canaan. It all started, in, it all started way out in Ur of Chaldeans. In Genesis chapter 12, when God promises Abraham, you're going to have a seed that every nation... Every, really, what he's saying, every tribe and tongue will bow down to, will, will, will come to me through, is what he's saying. That promise is way out in the pagan world. And now he's there. Little Judah, little Judah has the seed of Christ in him, and he's now in the land. It's good stuff. Jesus is coming, you know that? You guys know the rest of the story? Really cool. Father, thanks for this night. It's really good to study this word um, You're a great God, has given great promises. Help us cling to those. And we know, Lord, we are like Jacob. We will wrestle at times trying to get an answer out of you. 
But in the end, often you just tell us to trust you. You may even touch our hip every once in a while when we, we want to get ahead of you. But Lord, we pray that we would rehearse truths, put our faith in you, and walk faithfully in your ways. We know the wicked is out there. We know they hate you and hate us. But we know that we have a God who's greater, who can take men who hate and turn them into weeping, hugging, kissing people. We watched it today, Lord, in this text. So, Lord, help us trust you. Thanks for this message. In Jesus' name, amen. See you soon.